When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray, and George Belshaw of Metro.co.uk. George is back from Monte Carlo, and I'm told that he's got all of his money, didn't go into any casinos, I'm reliably informed by the GPS tracker that I keep on him at all times, sponsored by the Love Tennis podcast, of course, uh, but I don't think, having he gone into a casino, he could have found a bigger bet than Fabio Fanini to win the Monte Carlo Masters before the week. I don't think even you could pretend you saw this coming, George. No, not at all, and I think you'd have made even more money if you'd bet on a fognini Lajovic final. <laughs> unbelievable isn't it I mean when you look at even at the semi-final stage we probably sat there and thought well I think we know what the final's going to be here Nadal versus Medvedev really interesting matchup should be brilliant and then well let's start with the Fanini Nadal match because you look at it on paper and Nadal losing four and two on clay that doesn't happen yeah and it could easily have been four and, and love really you know Rafa was three love three one up in the first set and then Fognini just came roaring back. Rafa says he's played the uh, worst match he's played on clay in 14 years. Mm. Um, the results were suggested it was as well. Yeah, and you know, no one's bageled him on the clay since uh, Roger Federer in Hamburg in 2007. And Fognini should have done it. He mm. <laughs> had points to do it. Um, but it. It was remarkable. I mean, look, you've got to always give credit to guys like Fognini in this situation because even if Rafa's not playing anywhere near his best he beats 90% of that tour on clay mm. you know that, that's just a given it, you have to be a special type of person to beat Rafa on clay and for Nini is now one of just three active players to have beaten him three times or more on clay with Novak and Dominic team mm. uh, and there's one more uh, who's retired who I think is Gaudio yeah, off yeah. the top of my head um, so you know it, it's not like it's a one-off for Nini he's a certain type of player who can get under Nadal's skin but don't get him wrong you know he was really off colour this week as I'm sure we'll come on to probably. I mean Fanini is the kind of player who if he has a day because he plays low percentage tennis he goes for every ball you know we know the type of character he is with the thumb sucking and the shouting at umpires if he comes off he can do this we know it but you would expect someone like Rafa Nadal 
even on uh, like is the exact wrong matchup for him because Nadal just gets everything back. So even when you hit that perfect shot that you're trying to hit every time, he still gets it back. You say Nadal's been off colour. What do you mean? What do you think? I mean, you you saw him live a couple of times this week. Did you sense any of that? Yeah, I mean, look. In, after his if I first go back match, through your Twitter timeline, will I see well, evidence of it? I, you know, Grigor Dimitrov dominated him, um, or you know, at least made it incredibly close. Mm. Uh, the scoreline wasn't that close. It was four and one. It was the Guido Pella match that I think people were watching and like, okay, this is Rafa not quite as best. I think that was still straight sets, but one was like seven five, and Pella had plenty of chances to win that set. I think he was up like four or five one in mm. that first set. Um, so, you know, but as I say, it, Rafa, I was expecting to be a little bit slow this week, having just come back from that injury, you know, even though I was expecting him to win every match, I thought there might be some tougher moments where opponents fancied their chances against him. And that seems like it was going to be the case up to that Pella match. Um, and then just in step Fognini, who absolutely killed him. And it, it really was such a one-sided destruction. I don't think that 6-2, 6 Six four six two scoreline does it justice in many ways. I mean, Fognini absolutely battered him from the baseline. He really was all over him. Um, and as I said, it really should have been six four six love. What does this mean for Rafa going forward? What has he said? What What do you think he thinks about this? I mean, we know that Nadal's one of the great compartmentalizers mentally. That that's kind of why he is such a great player. Do you think it is significant for his clay court form? Well, look when. We went to speak to Rafa after his first match. Now, bear in mind, he won that like two and one. He was incredibly short. He was grumpy. Didn't seem happy at all with his victory. I was asking him a bit about his knee, about the pain. He says, yes, there's obviously still pain. You know, he'll put that down to years of wear and tear on the tour. But there was a sense immediately there that you didn't want to be too foolish going out and saying it immediately when you know Rafa could likely steamroll everyone else all week. But there was mm. a sense he wasn't that happy there. Right. And I think looking how the results panned out after that, you have to be a little bit worried, I think. I mean, I, I, I did a bit of digging on his kind of stats about what it means when he doesn't win Monte Carlo to win the French. Um, and while he has won the French Open twice without winning Monte Carlo... The flip side of that is that there's only been one occasion he's won Monte Carlo and not gone on to win the French. So it almost guarantees him going on to win it. Hmm. Um, so mentally... I mean, the, prob- it, the problem with that set of stats is that it's very difficult to draw statistical conclusions from Rafael Nadal's clay court form because every defeat is an anomaly. Hmm. Literally, he is so dominant on clay that it is almost random when he loses. And I don't know how much you can draw. But I suppose it. compared to Madrid and Rome, where he's only picked up... I think five and yeah, the, well, the surfaces six are less titles, you know, well exactly, you know, and it, Monte Carlo, you could say in many ways is probably as close to Roland Garros, maybe Rome's slightly closer, but you know, those two are the the closest, and Monte Carlo is the one traditionally he's done strongest in. Mm. Um, but what we can say about him is, if he doesn't win Barcelona this week as well, which is another tournament he'll be going for a twelfth title on, then you've got the alarm bells ringing, and as we always say on the show, you know. It just takes one result to kind of put a pin in that kind of air of invincibility mm. and suddenly deflate it and because get it, other people getting belief. Exactly. It changes how every player plays against you. They start playing against you a different way. And you also provide a blueprint. You know, it happens when, when good football teams who have a unique system get dismantled. We saw it. Maurizio Sarri's Chelsea, for example, went on that massive unbeaten run. One team beat them and all of a sudden they went, oh, oh this is the blueprint of how to beat them. Bish, bash, bosh. The great players evolve. Now, I'm sure Rafa will evolve. 
But if he's not playing to his highest level, it's a game plan that doesn't really necessarily work if he's not at 99%. Worth a mention as well of Novak Djokovic, because he was looking pretty decent all in all, before he ran into Daniil Medvedev, the man we said might have quite a big clay court season. In the quarterfinal, uh, he won a set down, pulled one back, but lost in 3 6 3 4 6 2 you know what I mean. Six three four six six two. A surprise, a big surprise, right? Yeah, I mean, his his first match against Cole Schreiber was the one that was most bizarre to me. I mean, he was really bad in that Novak. Mm. Like we're talking about Rafa being bad. Novak was bad in that match, and you know, Cole Schreiber had he played the Cole Schreiber he played in Indian Wells rather than there, he would have lost. I think um, it was a. There were a lot of chances, a lot of missed opportunities for Cole Schreiber that he didn't take. He wasn't kind of clutch enough, but... I mean, it is Philip Cole Schreiber, would you expect? Yeah. <laughs> literally, like, his whole thing is getting opportunities, not taking them. <laughs> um, but guys uh, in and around Novak's team were saying that they were really concerned with how he was practising. So wow. uh, there's, it wasn't a case of he was stepping on the court and being bad. He was bad on the practice court as well. And I mean, you tried telling that to Taylor Fritz. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, quite. Right. love. You know, he he improved a lot by Telefritz, and that's where this kind of surprise comes from, from Medvedev. You know, I was expecting Novak to be, to ex- to take a bit of time to find his feet on this surface. Mm. Um, I think he's constantly saying he just wants to peak for the French Open, which is fair enough in many ways, but he will also want to create, like we're talking about Rafa's era of invincibility, Novak will want to do the same sort of thing on clay, and he'll want to be posting big results. And the way he played against Medvedev, it wouldn't suggest to me that people are going to be looking at him and thinking, wow, it's going to be really tough to beat Novak on this surface. I think he's got a long way to go. And the the noises emanating from his team are it's such a contrast to what they were saying after the Australian Open, where essentially they said to me they were, he was going to beat Rafa on clay by the same scoreline he beat him in Australia. Now, uh, you know, that to a degree you might say is a bit tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, there was a sense that Novak would walk into this clay season back then and be the favourite to win the Grand Slam. I don't get the sense that's the same feeling right now. There's a bit of concern within his camp. I mean, let's not also forget that last year on clay, he lost to Team, Klezan, Carl Edmund, Nadal, and then Cecinato, of course. So None it's... of whom are bad clay players, I'd also kind of add. I mean, no. Klezan's the one you're looking at. Yeah, Klezan. And Carl Edmund, Carl Edmund has not been good on clay <laughs> in his career. Like He has, at uh, times, looked like the he worst. He almost beat Rafa once. Yeah. All oh, right, fine. Okay. Almost beating Rafa. Player. Right, interesting. Okay. <laughs> well, well, we can discuss Carl Edmund's record on clay. Uh, in fact, we can do it right now uh, because he, of course, has uh, lost to Schwartzman in Monte Carlo. Uh, he also lost to Songa in Marrakesh. These aren't terrible names. No, no, not, not terrible. <laughs> How did you start? You you watched him play Schwartzman, I believe. Yeah, it was awful. How did, really? Yeah, I mean, Schwartzman lost in the next round to Fritz, which I think. <laughs> tells you a lot about what sort of level he was at. Edmund was battering Schwartzman and then just had a mental collapse, really. Um, there was Which no is reason not really like him recently. No, I... You know, he he came out after the match and said, well, I, I fought right until the end and it didn't didn't feel like that to me. It felt like he gave up the ghost pretty quickly when, when things started start going wrong with him. How much do you think Freddie Rosengren's retirement's hurt him? Given how much lot. credit we gave him for the improvement. Yeah, I think I think it's a lot. You know, there's, there's no questioning Rosengren's an excellent coach and had a huge impact on Kyle. I'm not saying, look, Kyle's not playing so badly that it's a complete disaster at the minute, but he is the third man 
uh, third British man in the race to London, comfortably behind Cam Norrie, and Dan Evans is in mm. front of him as well. And I think he's around 50, 60 in the race to London, something like that. So it's not, you know, the, the alarm bells aren't necessarily ringing right now, but considering he was on the knocking on the door of the top 10 last year, He's some way short of that form right now. Do you think there's a little bit of false expectations, though, given it was such an outlier what he did last year? You know, we loved it, and it was amazing to watch when he got to the semis of the Australian Open. But it was just so out of keeping with all of his other results. Do you think that actually what's happened is our expectation levels are absurd? And if we looked at <laughs> Carl Edmund, you know, currently whatever he is in the world, 23, and usually we'd say, great, as a, uh, a British lad at 23 in the world, brilliant, amazing, Kyle Owen, oh, nearly beat Diego Schwartzman on clay, bad luck, Kyle. Actually, what this has done is changed our whole paradigm for him, and mm. maybe changed his as well, in that his expectations are now so high. You know, he always says he's got the best forehand in world tennis, so that when he starts sliding, that self-belief, which is so high, is also very brittle and fragile and can collapse. Yeah, absolutely. You look, when you put expectations on yourself every result gets a lot harder. I don't think mm. there would have been too much expectation or pressure on him last season. And again, the, this is where you might say Rosengren's influence is missing because I imagine he's good at having a word in his ear keeping that, that mental state right. And that that's arguably the mm. most important thing about a coach, not necessarily teaching him forehands and backhands because the game's there. The game's improved a lot under Rosengren. I'm not saying it's gone away, but mentally he went away from Schwartzman. And that's a bigger concern for me. Yeah, and I think when you put those expectations on yourself, you're a set and a break up you're saying, I really should win this. I really should win this. Whereas if you have no expectations, you're a set and a break up, you're going, crikey, I'm going to win this. I must be playing so well. I'm going to win this game. Mm-hmm. And those two, you know, we talk about how mental a game tennis is. Those two different emotions have such contrasting influences on your psychology throughout a match. I hope Carl comes back bigger and stronger, but it's a worrying slide at the moment. We should have mentioned in that segment our Cam Norrie picked up his first ever Masters win and followed it with his second ever win, beat Adrian Manorino uh, and then Martin Fuchs. So it's lost to Lorenzo Sinego, but a qualifier who you said actually quite impressed you. Yeah, I think Sinego is a very, very good player, good forehand. Um, mm. Yeah, I like him a lot. I think he's playing a lot below his ranking, particularly on this surface. Right. Um, it's worth also pointing out that we talk about mental perspective. Cam Norrie came to Monte Carlo on the back of a four-match losing streak. You know, all right, to some decent players, but also to Jordan Thompson. Yeah. You know, who's a player he would expect to beat or at least get closer than, than he did. So important for him to come in and, and kind of start afresh and pick up some wins on clay as well, which has probably not always been his strongest surface, although yeah. we've, seen, we've seen bits and pieces of it. Look, he, he'd not, I think the story goes, he'd not played on red clay before he actually went pro. He'd done a bit on green clay in America, mm. but he'd never played on red clay. Right. Um, I actually think it's the surface that's going to suit him best, really? along with the slower hardcore. I think gives him a lot more time on that forehand, which is quite a big, exaggerated motion. Um, mm. So, you know, I don't see Cam Norrin necessarily being a great grass player, although it serves okay. And as a lefty, you will get chances on a grass court, aka kind of Gilles Muller, Feliciano Lopez could sort of go that way. But, uh, you know, I think he put, he's got a lot of spin on that forehand, got mm. a big kind of top spin. It pushes guys back, uh, and his flat backhand works quite well there as well. So I think there's a lot about his game to like on the clay. Um, he says he thinks hard's his best surface, but I wouldn't be surprised if clay ends up being the one we look at him on the in the future. Also, when we're talking about British players, of course, this weekend was the Fed Cup playoff at the Copper Box Arena. You were there, George. Yeah. First of all, tell us about the atmosphere. We, we spoke to Katie Swan last time out. 
and she was pretty excited about playing in front of that crowd. Was it everything it promised to be? Yeah, I'd say the uh, Kazakhs were incredible, actually, <laughs> first and foremost. I mean, they really lived up to their promises. They had this fantastic trumpeter uh, slash trombonist. When who... you say trumpeter, did he have a trumpet and a trombone? Yeah. Or was it a weird instrument you couldn't recognize? No, 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 no. Oh, I'd know my brass instruments being uh, Birmingham School's former first trombonist back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> there is something you did not know about George Belshaw. So uh, I, you know, I was really admiring. Right, you, you know, were re- you were really getting down to, down and dirty excited. on the technical side. <laughs> Impressive. Um, yeah, no, he he was excellent. You know, he was kind of punctuating different points when Conta was missing a serve with a wah, 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 sort of thing. <laughs> there was a bit of Beethoven's fifth in there. Uh, there see, was this is the kind pop of, songs. This it's is the great. kind of fun that tennis needs, isn't it? Because sometimes, especially at individual tournaments, and for some reason, team tournaments bring it out better it can get stuffy. Yep. And actually, yeah, a trumpet going wah, wah, wah <laughs> would be pretty frowned upon. But in that sort of scenario, I think it embellishes the whole experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is, I think, probably the only big frustration from this whole tie when you consider the heroic comebacks of Conta and Bolter, who was injured in that second match, having missed match points the night before, mentally shattered, physically broken, to then come back and win it for Britain. You know, there, there was all this sort of emotional element, plus this great atmosphere that challenges the kind of perceived notions on tennis in this country where people think it starts and ends with Wimbledon where you can't say boo to a goose. Mm. It's just such a shame it wasn't free to air on British television. Yeah, so you could stream it on the the LTA website and things and yeah, a few other Facebook places. Page, yeah. but, and it was on BT Sport. But it wasn't on BBC. BT Sport have got a deal, haven't they, with women's tennis? Well, Presumably that's pretty financially beneficial for the sport. Well, so my understanding of the uh, rights deal here was that the LTA would have helped BBC put money in to get the rights off BT Sport for this one. They just mm. wanted a small fee. The, the fee from the ITF was less than 15,000. Right. So we're not talking about big money. The BBC said they didn't have the budget. Right. Which is long and short of it, which I think... It's not a surprise. But it's not good either because, you know, they're they're talking about this big push for women's sport and, you know, LTA Chiefs were similarly saying they're getting a bit of pushback in terms of timings for the BBC to show the Women's Football World Cup this Mm. summer. Um, You know, they're pushing netball, they're pushing women's cricket... You know, in women's tennis, Conta's probably as well known a British athlete, female athlete, as anyone else. You know, you're looking at like Dina Asher Smith, current active ones right I would, now. I would she's agree. up there. I would agree, and I, I know this is slightly tangential, but she's not a popular one for whatever reason. Joanna Conta does not grip the hearts of the nation. No, but Katie Bolter's a growing one as well. You know, it's, it's a good opportunity to. I, I think the point, the wider point is they've got to be given the platform to capture the nation. And it's hard to excite British fans in that Wimbledon atmosphere unless you're Andy Murray, I think. Mm. You know, I think... And and, and what we've got... You're right, it is a great opportunity. And what we've actually got is this gaggle of young British female players, Parriott Dark, Katie Swan, Katie Bolter, who are, A, pretty talented... Be quite likable as well, and mm. interesting people. You know, we, you, you know a number of them quite well. We've spoken to some of them on the podcast, and they are interesting people. They're not, as some countries produce tennis bot three thousands who just come out and hit balls ten thousand balls a day. They're interesting people, and if you give them the platform, you know, look at some of the people who are celebrities in this country, sporting celebrities, and they're only famous because they've had the chance to reach a bigger audience through terrestrial TV, through, I don't know, I'm a celebrity or whatever it happens to be. I know it's a bit different, but you can get these, you can make tennis popular 
there are characters in there who people want to see. You just have to give them the platform to do so, and it's disappointing that the BBC aren't able to do so at the moment. Even more of a reason to pay your licence fee. <laughs> I know my boss is going to hate that. He hates the BBC more than life itself. Let's talk about the tennis itself. Yeah. Uh, Joanna Conta <clears throat> dropping the first set of the entire tie, but then coming back to beat Zarina Diaz, as we expected she would. And as you say, Katie Bolter missing out on match points in a three-set epic with uh, Yulia Putin Sveva. That would have been a real upset for Bolter to beat her, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would have been. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, Bolter putting herself in that position was a, a really impressive performance in itself. I and mean, is a really, really tricky character. She's very fiery. Uh, you know, she left the Australian Open this year giving the crowd the middle finger. She's that, <laughs> some have kind of dubbed her the Nick Kyrgios of women's tennis. Right. Um, so she's incredibly plucky and was never going to go away. Um Bolter had chances. You know, there were a couple of short forehands on those match points that I think she should have put away. But you can only give her credit that she's not taken herself out the limelight the next day. You know, she had that slight back injury. It would have been easy to say, and I don't feel physically ready to do this, when in fact she was masking a kind of mental hmm. slowdown. And then she's just set in a breakdown in this match, and you're thinking, well, should, should Kiotha Vong have been throwing in one of the other young girls who was fit and ready and not mentally scarred by this? So for her to overcome that as well, I think, speaks to a really strong character and what we've got here is a fed cup team who seem to thrive in the atmosphere which hasn't mm. always been the case so well they've I... never had the atmosphere to thrive in because <laughs> we have never had home ties um but promoted now to the world group but what the hell that means is another question as well because yeah, we'll see. it's being voted at the french open and probably going to essentially have made this result meaningless but it, it'll <laughs> give britain a stronger case for a well, place so that, in whatever i think it, i think the, they're going to be in a qualifying playoff either way Right. Regardless, so they might be seeded for that now, rather than not. Well, that's good, uh, basically. In theory, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it depends what you get, of course. But oh, yeah. well, 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 crucially, well done, the British Fed yeah. Cup team. Well done, Anne Kiothavong, uh, another person who's been on the pod and spoken very well about exactly what's going on in that setup at the moment. A couple of really talented players in there, and great for them to be playing on a big stage. Now, I think it's important to address the important topics in tennis. And some of them, we talk about tennis politics a lot. I say we. George talks about tennis <laughs> politics a lot. And sometimes it's a storm in a teacup. And it's lots of internal affairs. And it's egos versus egos. I think this story is a little bit more important than that. Uh, Justin Gimmelstob, as we know, has been an extremely controversial figure in tennis for actually quite some time. It has now, I think, leaked into more than just controversial. He's pled no contest in this battery case. The story here, essentially is that he attacked a, a former friend over a personal grudge uh, while he was out with his family on Halloween. It was a very serious incident. As we say, he's pled no contest to battery, which is not a guilty plea, but it's something close to essentially an acceptance of the story that's been put forward by the prosecutors. The, the witness, the victim statement, sorry, um, is worth reading. We'll put it on our Twitter as well, but it, it's pretty harrowing. And essentially, Randy Kaplan is, is pointing out that this attack was A, painful and brutal, <laughs> and and B, his wife suffered a miscarriage because of the stress that it induced. I mean, George, the the flip side of all this, well, not the flip side, but the sort of on, ongoing consequences of this is that Gibbonsop's place in tennis is at risk. Now, I f seem to think, from your suggestions that he may retain his place on the ATP Council. Is that the uh, the official role he has? Yeah, so he's um, he's a player representative on the ATP board. Mm. So there's a six-man board. Um, so he essentially three... sticks up for the, for players, the players' council. So when we're looking at 
the Chris Commode vote, the players themselves didn't actually vote. It was they vote to advise the board, so they were deadlocked at five all. But the ATP board, ATP player board, all three of them said no, Commode has to go. Mm. So you know that's the sort of level of power we're talking about here. The players speak up to these guys and advise them, and there are three guys on the tournament board who basically create this board that then goes up to Commode, who's the president, who casts the deciding vote if the three are deadlocked. Um, again, I don't want to go too long and boring into the ins and outs of this, but there's two pretty simple ways uh, Gimmelstob could be forced out of that role. Essentially, voted out by the upper council, yeah. if all five of the other ones vote against it. Yeah, assuming he votes for himself. <laughs> well, honestly, Gimmelstob might betray himself at this point. <laughs> we don't know. But yeah, and that, that seems unlikely because he's got at least one very strong ally on that yeah. board. David Eggers um, from the a Tennis Channel executive, uh, they've put out a very flimsy statement. It should be added at this point about this because he also works for them. Um, and that, I don't think, gone down particularly well. They kind of were saying, you know, the matter seems to be resolved now and we'll discuss him returning. Um, Which is co- com- completely inadequate. Missing the tone completely. Yeah. Um, you know, realistically, we want a statement coming out now saying Tennis Channel finds these actions are unacceptable and not fitting in with our ethos and he'll no longer be working for us. I mean, mm. that, I don't think that's too strong to ask for, but this is tennis. This is high-level sport. Things are... He could be voted off by the players. <laughs> yes. Who are probably fans, I think, would probably say, well, the players should take responsibility for this then and make sure that their sport's being run by people who we think are acceptable and reasonable people. Yeah. There's a 10-player council. Yeah. They need six of them to vote against him. Yeah. And you were saying earlier that essentially... Some have already said they're not going to. It looks pretty slim. Yeah, Pospisil's already come out and said he thinks um, Gimelstopper deserves another term. I mean, his term on the ATP board is actually up for renewal in Rome uh, next month anyway. So this would be on the agenda regardless of the situation, Mm. essentially, which I suppose is quite good timing. Um, And I imagine, look, in Madrid the week before Rome... You'll be hearing a lot of answers from guys like Kevin Anderson, Novak Djokovic, people on kind of high-profile figures on the uh, on the player council. And so far, their response when asked about this has been, "Let's see what the legal outcome is before we make a decision." They can't now. They can't say that. So they, they've got to talk about this now. And mm. that you, you can't go around saying that in Australia and then get a legal verdict and not kind of say your piece, really. Um, so I, I like to think the players would. At least one of the five who potentially would vote with him would would sway. But I I really wouldn't hold your breath. And this will be an incredibly bad look for tennis if they don't get him out. George, it doesn't even it doesn't even begin to cover it. Bad look. It's actually morally reprehensible that they can see that someone has done this. We know the American legal system is complex over these cases. The fact that you can plead no contest. He's been given, what, three years probation, I believe. Yeah, and 60 days community service. You can sit there and say, oh, we think that he's been given his punishment by the courts in America, so we're going to stand by that decision. I don't agree. He's in a privileged position, a position where he governs a whole sport that relies on young people. He's a he's sort of a role model. He's a very public face because of his work with the Tennis Channel. So how they can stand him up and say, yeah, this bloke's an okay person for you to follow, be like Justin Gimmelstob. How they can do that in all good conscience, I don't know. There are plenty of people we know in tennis who don't work in those positions because of various different political 
workings, whether it be things they've done or just personal grudges. So it's complete hypocrisy for tennis as a whole if Justin Gimmelstop continues to be an important person in the decision-making progress of this sport going forward. The players should be ashamed of themselves if they don't vote him off, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. And it does... uh potentially raise further questions about this whole commode vote in the first place. I mean, Gimelstop, you cannot play down the influence this man has had over that vote. You know, we're talking about Egder's voting with him regardless of anything. It, it, essentially, Gimelstop has controlled that vote. Mm. And I just think that's such a an unfortunate look. That a decision of that magnitude has come down to someone facing these charges. I mean, the, as far as I'm concerned, the, the vote should have been delayed until after he, his legal proceedings were done or he should have stepped away from the board mm. while that decision was undertaken. Um, whether they will go back, I know there are some in the ATP who hope that will be the case, but I would never hold my breath. That is just about all we've got time for on this week's Love Tennis podcast. Barcelona, of course, getting underway. We'll be looking back at all of the action from Barcelona Quick prediction, George, who do you see coming out on top? Have you looked at the draw? That's the real question. Uh, I'll be honest, I haven't studied it closely, but I That's think I will be um, I will be going for Rafael Nadal to win the tournament. You'll be surprised to hear. Rafael Nadal to win Barcelona? Gosh, <laughs> George Belshaw really putting his nuts on the line there. Unbelievable stuff. It's quite but, a strong field, though. We've got you, teams, Verev, Sissipas. Uh, uh, should be a strong winner. I don't love Nadal's draw, incidentally. Mayer, probably Lucas Puy, maybe... David Goffin or Tsitsipas, the winner of that match. There are challenges there. Dominic team in the semi-finals as well, not in the final. So, you know, it's not going to be easy. Oh, and also this bloke, Fabio Fognini, but he's in the bottom half. Back-to-back Masters wins for Fabio Fognini. <laughs> Who wouldn't enjoy that? It'll be nothing if not entertaining. It's our tagline for the podcast, isn't it? Nothing if not entertaining. Um, that's all we've got time for, unfortunately. George will be heading off to Madrid next week. So I'm sure we'll get the update from there as well. Do give us a rating on iTunes. Leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Only nice ones, please. We have very fragile egos. We can't cope otherwise. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.